Our scripture reading this morning comes from Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, where Paul, writing to the Philippians, says these things. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which I also was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Scott's been here a couple of times before and has preached for us. As I mentioned this morning, he is going to the Brown Trail School of Preaching, and uh, I know they are getting some very rigorous training there, and uh, we'll see that in his talent this morning. So uh, be uh, attentive to what he has to say this morning. Scott. Thank you. Good morning. It's, uh, it is rigorous, but apparently not rigorous enough to teach me how to not slam my knee into the pew on the way up, so it smarts a little bit. But My name is Scott Dekowski, as you said, and I'm here with my wife, Sarah, and our two kids, uh, Darcy and Audrey, and we're glad to be here with you this morning. Uh, we're very, very grateful for the support that you give us, um, as you mentioned. Uh, we uh, uh, appreciate that. It really helps a lot as we do this two-year program at Brown Trail, and I feel like we're learning a lot, and our brains sometimes feel like they're going to fall out of our heads, but it's, uh, it's been really good, so we're glad to be here this morning. If you'd like to open to Philippians chapter 3, <clears throat> Philippians chapter 3, you know, when I was in high school, I went to, uh, to one of the only high schools in Texas that didn't have football. Uh, it's kind of unusual, you know, Texas is, uh, football is kind of a big deal in Texas, but, uh, but we didn't have it, and to be honest, that was really kind of okay with me because I, I didn't really want to play football. So, you know, I just, I didn't have to deal with that. But I did run track and I was really, really slow. I was terribly slow at track. And, uh, and so the track season my junior year, it came and it went. And the last day of track, you know, I didn't advance. Several of us didn't advance. And so the next day, we still had an athletic period and, uh, and we uh, trying to decide what to do because track season had ended and so we didn't really have any, any particular sport that we were playing at that time. And so they decided that they wanted to play football. Well, I really didn't, I didn't want to do that and I was trying to think, how am I going to get out of this? And so I thought, you know, before they really get started, I'm just going to take off and I'm going to run around the track a couple of times and, uh, and let them get started and then I'll go find something else to do. Well, a few weeks later, we're having our athletic banquet and, uh, and the, the track coach stands up and he says that this year he wants to award the most valuable player in track award to someone who is so dedicated that even the day after track was over, he was still out there running around the track getting ready for next season. I didn't, I didn't have the heart to tell him that I, that's not what I was running. But uh, at any rate, in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, Paul writes, and he uses several terms. He's writing about the idea of time, but he uses several terms, uh, running terms, 
to help us understand how we should look at time, the way that he looked at time. Running was a really big deal in the, in the first century, especially in Grecian society. You know, you think about, the, you know, the, the foundation of the Olympics, and it was running. I mean, that was the, the primary thing. If you could win the race, you were, you know, the, the top of the, the food chain, as it were. And so he uses some of those terms here to kind of help us identify with what he's talking about in Philippians chapter 3. And so I want us to notice verses 12 through 14, first of all, that he makes some references to time when he says, starting in verse 12, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, that's the past, and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, that's the future, I press, that's the present. He says, I press today toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And so uh, he's talking here about how he views time, and he talks about the past and the future and the present. And he says that it's important that we have a a proper view of time. You know, we want to look at time in the way that, that he looks at time, because too much of an emphasis toward the past, well, that can really negatively affect what you do today. Likewise, too much emphasis, too much worry about the future can negatively impact what we are doing today. And so he, he encourages us to have a proper view of time. And as I said, he uses some runner's terms to help us understand that. And so I want to start by looking what he says in verse 13 when he writes about the runner who uh, is too busy looking behind him, the runner who looks behind. You know, have you ever been out, you've seen people running, or maybe you are a runner, you've been in races or something, and there's always those people who, they look like they think that the CIA is chasing them, right? They're always kind of looking behind them, right? I never had to worry about that because I knew I was in last place, so it didn't matter what was behind me. But, you know, some people, they, they seem like they're always looking behind them. Well, if you look at serious runners, they don't do that. They don't look behind them because they know that it wastes energy. And that's kind of what Paul is talking about here when he says in verse 13 that he forgets those things which are behind. Now, he's not saying that he literally obliterates the past from his mind, that he never thinks about where he came from. There can be great benefits, the Bible talks about, of remembering where we came from. You know, remembering people that we've known in the past that, that, we, uh, that we were fond of, good times that we had, as long as remembering our past mistakes, the things that we've done that we don't want to repeat. These can be beneficial for the Christian to remember where we come from. And still he says that he wants to forget what is behind. And so perhaps to help us understand what he means when he says he wants to forget the past is to compare it to the Greek idea of remember. See, the Greek idea of remember is a little bit different than our idea of remembering. When we talk about remembering something today, we think about, you know, I, I remember something that happened yesterday. I remember to bring my grocery list to the grocery store. There, there wasn't anything to buy there because everyone's bought it all apparently, but, you know, I brought it, right? I remember to, uh, I remember when, you know, when you were knee-high to a grasshopper, right? Like, we remember, and we use the idea of remember in lots of different ways. But, uh, but when the Greeks talked about this idea of remembering something, in specific, they were talking about remembering something in a way as if it was happening all over again, to, to relive the past in a very vivid way. And so, you know, we see this today. We see this in some people. If you've ever been to somebody's home right after they've lost somebody, and, you know, you sit on their couch and you try to talk to them or, or, or to comfort them, and you kind of notice that, that they've stopped listening and, and their eyes kind of glaze over and and they're in another place in time. 
They're thinking about the person that they lost. They're thinking about maybe good memories or regrets that they have. They're not, they're not even, their body is here in the present, but their mind is somewhere else completely. They're not even really aware that you're there in the more. This is the idea of remembrance that the Greeks have. And if you've ever known someone who had PTSD, maybe a soldier or someone, you know, that they say at the 4th of July to be careful with fireworks, right? Because sometimes those fireworks, that popping noise, it can, it can cause a kind of reaction. And, and soldiers who have PTSD, it, their bodies are in the present, but, but their minds go to a completely different, even their nervous system, to, it can go to a completely different place. They see something that happened in the past as if it's happening right now. They might shout out something uh, as if it's happening to them, even though, even though their body is here, and, and it doesn't make sense with what's happening in the present, they are living in that moment as if they are in a different place in time. And so that's the idea that he's talking about here. When he says he wants to forget what is behind, he's saying he doesn't want to live in such a way that the past affects what's happening to him today. He lives in such a way that the past consumes his present. We notice he starts talking about that in, in chapter 3 and verse 3. If you turn with me to Philippians chapter 3 and verse 3. He says, chapter 3 and verse 3, For we are the circumcision. Now here he's talking about the Christians. Usually we think, when we think of circumcision, we think of Jews. And he's saying, like, we're the true circumcision. We're the the true people of God, is the idea. And he's going to use several terms throughout chapter 3 that that really are talking about the law of Moses. And that's the idea behind Moses. Uh, you know, circumcision there is the law of Moses. And so you're going to see that throughout chapter 3, these, these references to how they've, over, they've left the law of Moses to be here in the Christian faith. But the same thing applies to us today in the sense that when we talk about the past, our own past can act kind of like the law of Moses did for these Jews and that they trust in that too much and not in the present. And so he says, for we are the, the true circumcision who worship God in the spirit, verse three, who rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. And as there's a contrast that he makes here, he says, there are those who rejoice in Jesus and there are those who have confidence in the flesh. There are those who trust what they have done and there are those who are trusting in what Jesus has done. And he says, we need to be of the latter. Verse 4, he continues, though I also might have confidence in the flesh. This is the idea that, that Paul says if he wanted to, he has reasons that he could brag. If he wanted to, he has reasons that he could, that he could trust in his past success. And, and that's where he continues in verse 4. He says, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. He says, whatever it is that you have accomplished, and as far as being a Christian goes, whatever it is that you have done, Paul probably has more reason to brag about than you do. You know, maybe you have, have converted a number of people. You have lots of Bible studies in your home. You, you've baptized a number of people. Paul has probably baptized more people than you have. Maybe you've planted churches across America or, or in Africa or South America. Paul has probably planted more churches than you have. Maybe you've written a number of New Testament letters Now, you can't do that, right? That's only something that Paul and a few others did. Paul wrote more New Testament letters than anybody. Paul was was not even one of the 12 apostles. He was a 13th unique apostle. And so whatever it is that you have accomplished, he's not putting that down. He's not saying it's not worth anything. Hebrews chapter 6 says the things that you accomplish, God is pleased with. God is glad when you work in his kingdom. But still, we can recognize that if we were to compare, Paul has done more than we have. He said, I have more reason to brag 
He continues in verse 5, and we've talked about some of his Christian accomplishments, but he's going to talk about some of his accomplishments from when he was still in the Jewish faith, before he converted. When he says in verse 5, he was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. So he goes through and he says, you know, if you're talking about Christianity, he's accomplished more than we have. If you're talking about Judaism, he has accomplished more than the average Jew ever accomplished. He was at the top of the Jewish food chain. He says he has a lot of reasons that he could brag, but verse 7, what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Whatever reasons that I could trust in my past, whatever reasons that I could trust in the things that I have done before, I count those as loss. I don't consider those because I don't want to become so consumed with pride in my past accomplishments that I fail to do anything for God today. That's what he continues in verse 8, and he says, Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ so that word rubbish, it's, it's really an interesting word. When I think about the word rubbish, I think about British people. You know, that seems to be something that, that a word that they use more than we do. And, and you know, even we understand here that, that rubbish is the idea of trash, right? Something you throw away in the trash can. To the Greeks, it really meant more than that. It wasn't just, it wasn't just cups from, from Sonic or, 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 or uh, something from dinner. To them, rubbish was something that was truly vile, you know, the Greek word for rubbish is something that would include all kinds of disgusting things that we wouldn't even like talking about. And so when he says that word rubbish, he's saying that, that he can, when he thinks about his past successes and he thinks about the pride that could come from that, he says, I don't think about them anymore. I think of them as rubbish. I think of them as vile. I think of them as disgusting because I don't want to get caught up in that pride. Because what tends to happen is, we, we, we wake up in the morning and we say, you know, I want to work today. I want to do something for God's kingdom today. We start thinking, you know, about things that we've done before, and suddenly we start to feel very satisfied. We start to feel very good about what we've accomplished before, and those are good things. We should have done those things. We, we should be glad that we did those things. But if we start to think about them so much that, that we stop focusing on the present, and you think about time, you think about the past. We can't go back to it. We talked about it in Bible class this morning. We can't go back to the, t- the past. We can't change anything that's happened before. In the future, we can make plans for it, but we have no guarantees. We can't be certain of what's going to happen tomorrow. But we have right now. We have today that we, can, that we can seize, that we can do something with. We have, as a gift from God, this one moment that we know where we are and we know what we can accomplish. And so he says, I don't want to be too focused on the past because I want to work today. I want to do something for God today. You know, on the flip side of that, sometimes we can get so caught up in our past successes that they heed us from working today, but likewise, sometimes we can get so caught up in our past mistakes that they keep us from working today. And that's what he talks about if you look back in verse 6. In chapter 3, in verse 6, he says, "...concerning zeal, persecuting the church." 
Now, technically, he's writing about this as a positive thing from a Jewish perspective. Remember, the Jews who didn't convert, they did not like Christianity. They took pleasure in persecuting the church. And so when he's writing to them, he's saying, from a Jewish perspective, this is a positive thing that they would have considered persecuting the church. But of course, we know that Paul, Paul didn't take pleasure in that anymore, that he had converted and he no longer desired to persecute the church. And so he continues in verse 6, he says that he, had, he persecuted the church. What's interesting about this one entry of all the list of things that Paul had accomplished, what's interesting about this one is it's the only one written in the present tense. All the other ones are written in the past tense, things that had happened before. But this one is written as if it's still happening now. Now, Paul is not saying that he goes out at night with a mask on and persecutes the church when people don't know that it or something like that. What he's saying is he's writing about it in the present tense because as he writes it, he is remembering it so vividly that it's as if it's happening all over again. That's why he writes about it in the present tense, and the idea is that it haunts him. When he thinks about persecuting the church, when he thinks about the things that he did to Christians, to people that he now loves, people he wants to try to help get to heaven, it haunts him to remember what he did to them. You think about Stephen. Stephen, a faithful Christian, a man who who could have gone on to do even greater things in the kingdom if he hadn't died that day. Paul was held responsible for that death. And, And who knows what many other number of people that he approved of their death you know, what number of people, can you imagine standing up to speak before a crowd and you look out and what you see are, are the widows of men who you had killed, are the orphans of, of people who you had thrown into prison who never were able to get out of that. Can you imagine how crippling that would be to stand up and to speak to crowd when you see those people who you had hurt yourself? You know, our brains have a way of doing that, don't they? Of reminding us of, of bad things at the most inappropriate moments. It's like sometimes when I'm going to sleep tonight, that's when my brain decides to remember every embarrassing thing that I've ever done. Does that ever happen to you? And it's like, I'm going to be up for hours now, right? And you go to do something important. You go to, to, uh, to introduce yourself to somebody. You remember every time that you, you were awkward when you introduced yourself to somebody. You go to, to, to give a speech of some kind, and, and suddenly your brain remains, remembers every mistake that you've ever made. Our brains have this tendency to do this. We, we tend to remember our worst uh, moments in, in kind of crucial times. And so he writes about wanting to forget the past. He says he's not going to allow these, these negative experiences, these bad things that have happened, that he has caused himself to keep him from working today. If Paul is able to overcome that, surely any of us, regardless of what has happened to us, is going to be able to overcome that just like Paul did. And so in verse 13, he says, first of all, that he wants to forget those things which are behind. But second, he says he wants to reach forward to those things which are ahead. Reaching is another one of those runner's terms, and it's the idea of, of straining and stretching every muscle to get to the finish line. And so he says he's not reaching forward to the immediate future. Right? We don't know what's in the immediate future. We don't know uh, what, what might happen to us Uh, later today or tomorrow, and and that tends to cause worry and anxiety. He says instead he's reaching over those things, and he's looking to the ultimate future, the place where we're all hoping to end up someday. He is reaching and stretching and straining every muscle to get there. And he says he's reaching forward to those things which are ahead, and verse 14, and so he is pressing toward, he's reaching toward the goal. What is it that he's straining and stretching every muscle for? It's this goal that he has. 
Now, goal is another interesting word. It's one of those runner's terms, and it's a word that we know. It's the word scopos, which is where we get our word for scope. And so, for example, if you've ever used a, like a hunter's scope, right, a rifle scope, what happens when you look through that scope is it blocks everything out of your field of vision, everything out of your sight, so that you can focus on one distant thing. It's the same word where we get, uh, for example, telescope from, right? That means literally far-seeing telescope. So what happens when you look through a telescope? It blocks everything out of your field of vision, everything out of your sight, so that you can see that one distant star or, or planet that you're trying to see. Like what, microscope, it's the same thing. It literally means small seeing. And so when you look through a microscope, it blocks everything out of your field of vision, everything out of your sight, so that you can look at that one tiny thing that you're trying to see. And so here when he uses that word, that word scopos, that word goal, this is the idea that he's bringing. Runners do the exact same thing. If, are you familiar with the idea of a mark that a runner sets on something? You know, that's the idea that, that runners, if you watch serious runners, you know, right, they always have their watch, right? And, and they're always, they're so focused, they're so intense. But, but the idea is that, that when they don't look to the left or to the right, you know, when I ran, I, probably why I was so slow is, I, you know, there's like this nice hill over here that's got these pretty flowers on it. Or, you know, there's this like nice house over here. And I'm like, man, that's a really nice house. But serious runners, they, they look straight ahead. They pick one thing in the distance. And they set their eyes on it, and they don't look anywhere else. That's the only thing. Maybe it's a telephone pole. Maybe it's the back of another runner. Maybe it's something down the way, as far as they can see. And they set their eyes on that, and they don't look anywhere else until they get there. And then they set their eyes on a new mark until finally they can see the finish line. And when they can see the finish line, they set their eyes on that finish line, and they they look only at that until they get there. And so he says he's straining, he's stretching every muscle with his eyes set on one thing, his goal. What is his goal? He continues in verse 14. He says he presses toward the goal for the prize. So his goal is the prize. Now this is another runner's term, and and you might be familiar with the victor's crown that they wore in the first century. It was a leafy kind of crown that if you won the race, you got this prize, this, this victor's crown that, that says you've accomplished this. You have won your race. He says he has a prize that he is reaching for, a goal that he is reaching for. It's the prize of the upward call of God, a, a prize that God through the gospels has called him to, a prize that's found in Christ Jesus, he says in verse 14. But, but what is it? What is the prize that he is looking at? What is the, the goal that he is not taking his focus off of? He's actually told us that back in verse 8. In verse 8, when he says, Yet indeed, I also count all things lost. I block everything out of my field of vision. I put everything out of my sight. I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. This is the thing that he looks at to the exclusion of everything else. His daily focus, the thing that he sees more than anything, is wanting to know Jesus. Not just kind of a cognizant understanding of who Jesus is, but, but to know Jesus better, to, to understand who he is, and to, to begin or to build the relationship that we'll eventually have forever in heaven with Jesus. He says he wants to know them Verse 8, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, not trusting in the law of Moses, not trusting in what I've accomplished in the past, not trusting in my own self, 
But, he continues in verse 9, that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, trusting in what God is able to do for us. Verse 10, that I may know him. So this is his goal. This is his reason for existence. This is what gets him out of bed every morning. Today, I'm going to know Jesus a little bit better than I knew him yesterday. Today, that is, that is my goal. And he continues in verse 10, and he gives us uh, two essential ways that we can do that. He says, first of all, that we can know him through the power of his resurrection, and second, that we can know him through the fellowship of his sufferings. And he kind of attaches to that the idea that we are being conformed to his death. And you know, when you think about this, you think about the idea that we are conformed to his death, we can know Jesus better in two ways uh, when it comes to being conformed to his death. The first one is an essential first step. It's the idea that, that we are told that when we are saved, we are conformed to his death. When we hear the word of God, when we respond to it in faith, when we confess of, uh, that he is the son of God, that he is, he is our savior, but also our Lord, that we submit to his authority. When we uh, repent of the sins that we've committed in the past and say, I'm going to try my best not to do those things anymore, but instead do the things of God. When we are baptized, that's literally being conformed to the death of Christ, right? That's when, you know, Jesus was crucified on the cross. It says, when I step in the water, I'm saying, I am, I'm crucifying that old man of sin. I'm, I'm not going to, to be a man of sin anymore, but instead I'm crucifying him. And then we're lowering into the water. Just as Jesus was buried, we are buried under that water. And then raised again to new life, just as Jesus was resurrected from the dead, we are conformed to his death through this pattern of baptism. And that's how we are saved. That's how we become into a right relationship with God. That's how we are able to have the hope of heaven. So he says, first of all, we must be conformed to his death in this way if we're going to know him in any other way. But also, when we think about being conformed to his death, it, it doesn't just stop at baptism. And there's this idea of, of Paul says, I die daily. And Jesus tells us to take up our cross and to follow him. This idea that we have a will, we know what we want, and that doesn't always match what God wants. And we're, able, we're willing every day to put that aside, to die daily to what we desire, so that we can do the things of God, we can do the things that God desires. And so we are conformed to his death in that way, that we take up our cross and we follow him each and every day. Next he says in verse 10 that we, are, uh, that we have the fellowship of his sufferings. You know, I think this one is, is really interesting because it's kind of like Paul says, you know, I want to know Jesus better, and one way to know Jesus better is through suffering, and so therefore I, I want to suffer. But he's not really saying he wants to suffer, but just that he recognizes that, that he will. And we know that. We know as Christians we will suffer. Things happen to us nearly every day that we think, you know, I wish, I wish this didn't happen to me today. I don't have time for this. I don't have the resources for this. I don't know how to deal with this. It's just unpleasant. There are things that happen to us every single day. And we have two options at that point. When we come across suffering, we can do what the world does, and we can do what kind of seems to come naturally to us, is to, to ask the question, why? Why is this happening to me? Why is this happening today? And we have this tendency to, and I struggle with this too, to complain and to, to moan about the things that are happening to us. That is an option. But he says there's another option. He says when you suffer, you can recognize that Jesus suffered when he was here, that he suffered on the cross, that he suffered throughout his life, that things happened to Jesus all the time that, that were hurtful, that were negative, that caused him to suffer. 
And so when you suffer, when things happen to you, you can know just a fraction, just a little bit of what it was like for Jesus to suffer, especially on the cross. You know, when, when you suffer in this life, you can say, I recognize that Jesus went through something like this, something greater than this. And so I've become a little bit more like him today by handling suffering the way that he would handle suffering. And so we can, we can, we can complain and get nothing out of suffering, or we can, we can choose to handle suffering the way that he would and become more like him, to know him better, to set our mark on him and handle suffering each day the way that he would. But the third one in verse 10 that he says, and this is the most exciting one, the third one that he says is that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. You know, this is the one that we're all looking forward to. We've, we've sort of had it already, right? When we were raised out of those waters, raised from, from the, the dead of the spiritual death to have new life on this earth, we, we have the power of his resurrection through that. But, but that's really just the start of it because we have ultimately the power of his resurrection at the end of all things. And that's what he talks about in verse 20. If you look in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20, he says, For our citizenship is in heaven. The idea that you have a birth certificate, essentially, in heaven. You have a home there, a place there, if you have been baptized in Christ, if you are faithful to him. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior. One thing we see about the Christians in the first century is they were kind of sitting on pins and needles about Jesus coming back. They couldn't wait for Jesus to come back. They expected that it could happen any day. And, you know, I think sometimes we've, we, we tend to let ourselves forget that Jesus is coming back. And one time Sarah was teaching a Bible class, and it was, it was uh, five-year-old kids. And there was this one five-year-old boy, and, and she was teaching about Jesus coming back. And he said, you know, I don't think he's coming back. And she said, really, why, why is that? And he said, well, I'm five years old, and he still hasn't come back yet. And, you know, I think sometimes he's right. We feel that way. We know he will come back eventually, but it's been 2,000 years. What's, what's another 2,000 years? What's another 10,000 years? It, it could be 50,000 more years before Jesus comes back, and it could. But it could be today. It really could be today. And, and, and so they say we eagerly wait, we, we anticipate, we expect, we hope, we pray. It could be today. It, maybe it won't be. We don't know. But, but it could be. And if we live our lives in a way that, that we understand today could be the day that Jesus comes back, today could be the day that I could know him and the power of his resurrection. That's what he goes on to say in verse 20. Verse 20, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed. There that word is again, right? We're conformed to his death, but now we're conformed to his glorious body that we will, we will be raised from the dead. We'll, be, we'll meet him in the air. Are, are these bodies that, that decay, that, that, that die, that, that struggle, that experience pain and suffering and sorrow and sadness and temptation, these bodies will be transformed into these new glorious bodies that will not experience any of those negative things. This is the power of his resurrection. This is what we are hoping for, what we are praying for, what we are eagerly anticipating it could be today. And so he gives us these three ways in verse 10 that we can know him. And in verse 11 of chapter 3, he continues talking about this. He says, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead, by any means, the idea of any means is the idea of whatever God asks, 
anything that God requires, whatever God wants me to do to attain to the resurrection of dead, I will do it. If by any means I may attain the resurrection from the dead, it is worth doing whatever God asks of you. And so verse 12, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, not that I've been raised from the dead yet, not, not in the eternal sense, not that, I, not that I, have a, I know Jesus as well as I could or as well as I want to know Jesus. But, verse 12, I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. I haven't made it yet. I'm not there yet. But one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, not being controlled, not being consumed with the past, and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, not worried about the things of this life, not worried about the, the coronavirus or, or the things that, that are, people are struggling with in the immediate future, but reaching forward, straining, stretching every muscle to those future things, that resurrection from the dead, that home in heaven that we so desperately long for. I press, verse 14, I press. Remember, that's today. That's what you can do in the present in the present. The idea of, of pressing, that word, is another runner's word. And it's the idea of to pursue something with a singular focus. It's very similar to the idea of the mark, right? You look ahead at Jesus, at knowing Jesus better today than you knew him yesterday, through, through conformity to death, through, through suffering, and through anticipation of the resurrection that he has promised us. We become more like him. We, we do what he asks of us. We obey his commands. We, we share with joy this, this great thing that God has promised us with other people. I press toward the, the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Verse 15, Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. What mind is he talking about? It's the mature mind, the, the mind that... that presses on toward that goal. But also, it's kind of a callback to Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5. If you'll turn with me to Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5, he says, let this mind, this mature mind, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. And Jesus was a man. He was God, but he was also a man, just like a human, just like we are. And, and it says that he was a humble man. And so as we try to become more like Jesus, as we set our goal, our mind, our mark on Jesus, and we say, how can I be more like Jesus? You know, is that the, the attribute of Jesus is that is most emphasized in the book of, of Philippians is his humility. It's his ability to lower himself, to look at other people and say, how can I help them even when it cost me something? And you know, what did it cost Jesus to help us? It cost him his life. It cost him, uh, he was, it says he was as God was, and he chose to come to earth instead and to, to take his, div his divine essence and to put it into a human form. That, that cost him greatly. 
And then he died on the cross for us. And we can emulate that. We can be as Jesus was if we have this mind. And when we consider the past, when we consider the future, we consider what we can do today, what we can do right now for the cause of Jesus. Maybe you're here this morning and you, uh, you've not yet obeyed the gospel that we talked about. You've not been baptized. You've not been conformed to the death. We have to tell you that, uh, that the things that we're talking about, this hope of a resurrection, it's not yet yours. You have no hope of that yet, but, but certainly we want you to. This congregation wants you to. I want you to. And, and God certainly wants to bless you with that. And so in a moment, if you haven't done yet, that yet, we ask that you come forward so we can, we can study about that. We can consider that. Maybe you're here and you're afraid that you have just not been living to serve God today, to serve God, to press on in this moment. Maybe you need advice on how to do that better. Maybe you need prayers of the saints, whatever it is. We ask that you come forward as we stand and as we sing.